Lord, thank you for music and praise and, and the reminder that no matter the language, no matter what we say or how we say it, you hear our heart. Pray this morning that uh, we, would, we would hear your voice in ways we haven't heard, that uh, through this peculiar story there might be a, a, a piece of truth that resonates with us, that you would speak to us. But most of all, we thank you for your presence in our lives always. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to give a shout out to uh, our basketball guys over there, especially the guys who have all your chapel credits. I appreciate you being here today. And uh, for those of you who don't, meet, don't know me, I have the privilege of coaching those guys. And um, Christian, in his infinite wisdom, um, often... Uh, gives me some interesting passages to, to kind of talk through with you. And, and, and this morning, I, I get the opportunity to do that again. I grew up the son of a pastor. Are there any PKs in here? A few of you? If you're a PK, you know what it's like to have to listen to your parent preach week after week after week after week after week and how you tune them out after a while, right? Especially if you heard some of those snippets during the week as you're your parent was preparing that message. Well, that was me. And when I was a young kid, I discovered far more interesting than my dad's preaching sometimes was the stories I could find in the Bible. And so my dad was up there, I would have my Bible and I'd be looking through and you'd come across, if you're a 12 year old boy, uh, uh, the story of Jael. Jael was a woman in the Old Testament, and one of her husband's buddies was on the run from an army, and he, he showed up at her place and needed to just rest. He was exhausted, and she said, sure, come on in. Let me get you some milk, and you can lay down and sleep. And he's like, thank you so much. And while he's sleeping, she goes and gets a mallet and a tent peg and sneaks up, sticks it on his head, and nails his head to the ground. That's a great story for a 12-year-old boy, right? That's like, that's like, a, that's like a, a horror movie come to life. You've got um, Absalom. Those of you, uh, I'm always amazed. I'm still waiting for the, the football player with the really long hair to get just yanked backwards. I'm amazed at how they survive and, and survive. But Absalom was a guy like that. Had this long flowing hair. The women loved him. And he has a really bad day. He's riding his horse pretty fast. He's going through the woods, and his hair gets caught in a tree, and he gets yanked off his horse. That's a bad day. He's hanging there dangling, and, and the, the worst part is it doesn't get better. Somebody comes along and sees him and says, hey, that's a good target. Let me practice with my spear. And so while he's dangling in the trail, that's another great story for a 12-year-old boy, right? We have, a, we have a coach in our program, Finney Haas Starks. Yeah, you gotta love Finn, right? I bet most of you don't know where Finn's name came from. Finney Haas was the grandson of a, a priest. And, and Aaron was the high priest, and there was this play going throughout the land, and this guy, this Hebrew, just basically to mock and the law, and, and just and spit in the face of everything that was right, he goes and finds this foreign woman, and in the midst of everybody starts having sex with her in the middle of the congregation in a tent. Phinehas gets mad. Goes, finds a spear, 
walks into the tent and sticks it right through both of them. Next time Finn's on duty and you're tempted to sneak a girl in your room, Those stories are in the Bible, and, and when you're reading through the Bible, and it's like, what, why is this here? We have to stop and think and, and wonder and, and, and study. Last week, Christian introduced or talked about this concept of a Mark and sandwich, that when Mark writes his gospel, in the middle of one story, he goes somewhere completely different. And today's passage is just like that. He's he's writing about Jesus and his disciples doing these amazing miracles and casting out demons and healing people. And then right in the middle, he goes to a story where Jesus isn't even mentioned. And when you read the story, it's weird. And it's sad and it's evil. If you read it, I don't think you get the full flavor. So I'm just going to be a storyteller today a little bit and talk through this story with you. People started talking about Jesus, and they, they couldn't get a sense. Who is this guy? And some were saying, man, this, he, John the Baptist has come back to life. You see, John had been killed, and we're going to find out about it in a minute. John the Baptist has come back to life and is doing miracles again. And some other people said, no, this isn't John the Baptist. This is Elijah who's come back. Because you see, back in the day, Elijah was taken to heaven. He never died, and now God sent him back, and he's doing miracles. And somebody else said, no, this is, just, this is just another prophet that's come. God sent us a prophet. We need to listen to him. And then we're introduced again to this king called Herod. And Herod says, nope, I was the guy that killed John the Baptist, and I think this is him again. And then we're introduced to this story. You see, Herod was the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great, by the way, was the king who had all the little kids killed at Christmas time because he didn't want, didn't want another king to be born. And, and, and this Herod, Antipas is now his son. He's a ruler in Galilee. Not a good guy. So he goes to visit his brother Philip. Philip has a wife named Herodias, and Herod likes Herodias. And so Herod divorces his wife, steals his brother's wife, and her daughter, Salome, and they bring him back to live with Herod. Well, Herod is a guy who's pretty full of himself, and so on his own birthday, he throws his own birthday party. Usually for birthday parties, somebody else throws one for you, right? Herod throws his own birthday party, and he brings in all his buddies, and the alcohol is flowing, and everything's great, and Herod has this idea, let's get my daughter to dance for us. Now, this isn't Five-year-old little Sally coming in and doing her little ballet dance she learned at dance class. Salome is old enough to be married. And the dance she performs is usually a dance that they would hire prostitutes or women from the castle or slaves to do. It was an erotic, sexual performance designed to entice and arouse And the story says that Herod was so pleased with this sexual dance by his half-daughter, his stepdaughter, I should say, who, by the way, was also his niece. This is a really messed up family. And all of his buddies, his drunken buddies are there. 
And they're so pleased with it. Herod is like, whatever you want, even up to half my kingdom, I'm going to give it to you. Now, first of all, if you're a dad and your buddies are aroused by your daughter, you have a major problem. If you're a dad and you're aroused by your half-daughter, you have a major problem. And the story gets more bizarre. She says, just a minute, let me go talk to my mom. And she goes back to her mom, and see, here's what had happened before. When John the Baptist, who was this prophet, he was this teacher, he was this voice of what was right in the community, he goes... And, and when Herod took Herodias as his wife, John the Baptist starts saying something about it. There's no social media, but everybody knows what John the Baptist thinks. You've broken the law. You're committing incest because Herodias is also your niece. She's also your brother's wife. You're breaking all kinds of laws here, and Herodias gets angry. And when we read into the story and, and you read through the history of it, the likelihood Herodias was so mad at John the Baptist that Herod, who liked John, he liked to listen to John, he liked to talk to John, he puts him in prison probably to protect him from his wife. So Salome goes to her mom and says, what should I ask for? And she says, I got it. Tell him to go chop off John the Baptist's head and give it to me now. And so in the midst of this drunken party, in the midst of all of this life happening, Salome walks back in and says to Herod, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. And he orders the head cut off, brought to the party, and she carries it to her mom. That's a horrible story. That's not a redeeming story. You don't look at that and say, oh, there's a silver lining someplace. There is no silver lining. Maybe it was on a silver platter, I don't know, but that's about all the silver in the story. And yet Mark sticks this story right in the middle of telling us about all these amazing miracles that Jesus is doing. What do we take from it? This morning, I'd like to suggest briefly to you that there are three deaths I see in this story that are important. The first is the physical death. We learn about John the Baptist. We learn where he went. We get some validity from the Bible. I, I, I appreciate the fact that Bible, when you, I'm a history, uh, I was a history teacher, I was a history major in college. When you read most historical accounts of nations, they leave out the bad parts. They leave out the times they lost. They leave out the times where their leaders weren't good people. The Bible doesn't do that. The Bible gives us insights into how life really was. And when the nation rose up and was good, you go in the books of Judges and, and you find out people did what was right in their own eyes and it got them in trouble and then a judge would rise up and things were good and then they'd go bad again. You see the good, the bad, and the ugly. And in the midst of this account, when Mark writes this, they send it out to churches, people are going to say, yep, I remember what happened to John the Baptist. A lot of Jesus' disciples and followers probably started with John. Yep, I remember what happened to John. I remember how Herod killed him. And that would give them validity that this is true. But beyond the physical death, I think there's two that are more important for us today. The first is a moral death. Have you ever, 
This might be a bad question today. I'm going to go back when we first moved here. My sons had flip phones, not smartphones. And I tried to teach my sons directions. How to get places. To this day, they still have no idea where east, west, south, and north actually is because they have iPhones now and it's Siri telling them everywhere to go. I can remember my son calling me up. Dad, I'm trying to get to Lyons. Where are you? Well, I just passed Hutchinson. Well, probably got to turn back. Back in the day when you needed directions and, and you would try and go someplace and you got lost. I'm kind of stubborn, so my, my, my process is when I'm lost, I just keep driving and try and figure it out as I go. And sometimes you get to the place where you're just saying to yourself, how did I get here? I don't know. That's a scary question in life, isn't it? I think a lot of people ask that question in today's world. Anybody ever ask you when you were a kid what you wanted to be when you grew up? When I was a kid, we always wanted to be a cowboy or an astronaut. And then when you got into high school, oh, I want to own a business or I want to be an accountant. I never wanted to be an accountant, sorry. Wanted to be a professional basketball player, professional football player. This is, this is what I want to be when I grow up. I never heard anybody say, ah, I wanted to be divorced when I grow up. Never heard anybody say, I want to be an alcoholic when I grow up. Never heard anybody say, I want to walk into a church in San Antonio and kill a bunch of people when I grow up. But in today's world, a lot of people lose their way. Nobody said, I want to be in an abusive relationship. I want to be a meth addict. I want to be involved in human trafficking. I want to abuse my children. And so how does somebody who starts out life with all these great aspirations end up in one of those places in their life? I don't think Herod set out in life, someday I want to kill the most righteous man in the land. I don't want to kill, I don't want to behead the guy who preaches doing the right thing and being good. I don't think when Herod was 18, 19, he said, you know, someday I hope I marry my niece. Or I hope my daughter really arouses me. That wasn't his plan. But along his life, something changed. And I think what we have in Herod is a great example of a death of a conscience. You see, it starts out simple. It starts out small. Maybe, maybe it was a relationship. Maybe it was a decision. And the Bible says what happens is our consciences get seared. They get burnt a little bit. And some scar tissue forms, and it's a little harder to understand what's right and wrong. And along the way, Event after event, decision after decision, and pretty soon the lines between right and wrong get really blurred. You know, it's sad. We get to the end of Jesus' life, and Pilate brings Jesus to Herod. 
And early in, in Herod's life, he liked John the Baptist. He liked to listen to him. He was intrigued with him. Like I said, a lot of historians think he was protecting him for a while. But by the time we get a few months or years later, when they bring Jesus to him, all Herod wants Jesus to do is do a trick for him. Do some kind of magic trick. Perform for me. And when Jesus doesn't even acknowledge or talk to him, Herod and his soldiers mock him and ridicule him and send him back to be crucified. His conscience had become dead. It had been seared so much. I think it happens to us. We're in grade school and we can cheat a little bit and get a better grade and people are happy. Mom and dad are proud of our grades. We get to college and we can, we can kind of work around a rule and cheat a little bit and pretty soon it's not that far removed to think that we might cheat on our taxes a little bit and have a little bit extra money. If we can cheat on our taxes a little bit, maybe it's not so bad if we cheat on our husband or wife because our consciences have been seared. My wife and I were talking the other day. There was a podcast in New York City, the Breakfast Club, wasn't that it? And was talking with the pastor of Hillsong, and one of the hosts on the Breakfast Club was astounded that he thought pornography might be wrong. That, how, how would that be wrong? How do you get to that place where sexuality becomes a minor trivial thing? Bible says our consciences get seared. Bible says to guard our hearts, to protect our hearts. If I could go back, be a 19, 20, 21-year-old, one of the things I think would be most important is to be continue to guard my conscience, to be aware of what's right and what's wrong. Because I'll tell you, I know myself, complete candor here. I opened my phone up, I went to my news app, and it was the day, it was the, the day, I think the evening of the Sunday evening, it was a shooting down in Texas, and I saw the article. Before I read the article, I scrolled down to see if my team had won. See, I think my conscience is a little seared. I hear somebody saying, hey, I'm going to go work and fight sex trafficking. I think, okay, there's somebody else. I don't stop to think about how serious the problem is and how, how much it is. We, we see so much violence and stuff in our world. Even as followers of Jesus, our consciences get seared. And I never want to be like Herod where I lose sight of what's right and wrong. And so as young people who have your whole life ahead of you today, young adults, protect your conscience. Don't get sucked into a bunch of little tiny decisions where you end up, I don't know how I got here. And I don't know how to get back. There's another death that's not actually in this story, but it comes later, and I referred to it. You see, I first heard this story when I was probably seven years old. It was either at Sunday school or VBS. First of all, 
Why would you ever put this story in a Sunday school or VBS curriculum? Do you want to be the Sunday school teacher who's trying to explain this to a kid? I, I don't know, but that's where I first heard it. And this is what my takeaway from it. I'm glad I'm not as bad as Herod and Herodias, right? I'm glad I'm not that evil. And they became part of this list of characters in the Bible, people who were really, 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 really bad. All right? Cain's a bad dude, right? The first murderer ever. I mean, you never want to be the guy who's the first person to ever kill somebody. You've got Jezebel, who's like this evil, evil woman, so that even today when you hear that word, even people who aren't Christians don't necessarily think of that as a good name. Nobody names their daughter Jezebel. hope there's no Jezebels in here, by the way. All right? But you go through the Bible, and there's all these people. These are bad, bad people. We go through history the same way, right? Does anybody think Hitler was the shining example of a good conscience and moral? Nobody does. And growing up, you have these lists of people. I'm so glad I'm not like so-and-so. I'm glad I'm not as bad as Herod. I'm glad I'm not as bad as Herodias. That's an evil person. Again, complete candor. The truth is I am. Bible says our hearts are deceitful and they're exceedingly wicked. You ever had a really bad driver cut you off or done something stupid and for a split second you hope they run into a tree? Anybody but me? You don't want them killed, you just want them hurt a little bit, right? Have you ever, in the dark of night, had these thoughts that you're so glad nobody ever could hear the voices going on in your head right then? What the Bible tells us is we are just like Herod. We're just like Herodias. We are broken, we're wounded. We think evil thoughts, we do evil things. And even when we try to do the right thing, sometimes we fail. And if you're somebody who claims to be a follower of Jesus and you're feeling good because at least you don't listen to the music that the person down the hall listens to, or at least you don't watch the shows that somebody else does, or at least you're better than that person, you're missing the whole story of the gospel. Because we come to a final death. They bring Jesus to Herod. Herod mocks him. They send him back. He puts him on a cross. And the Bible says that for God so loved the world, and God so loved Herod, that he sent his only son to die, that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. The reality of the scripture is not that you have to be better than the person next to you. The reality of the scripture is not that you have to be better than that evil person. Or the reality of the scripture is that we're all broken. And God wants to show favor on us. God wants to love us. God wants to save us. God wants to extend mercy to us. Jesus died for the murderer and thief next to him on the cross. And we have to get out of our own pride and our own self-centeredness. As long as I'm better than somebody, no. 
You see, there's two things the Bible talks about that Jesus' death, that God does. God gives us mercy and God gives us grace. In our churches today, in religion today, we mix those up. We use those words interchangeably and they are very different. Mercy is God sparing us from what we deserve. And grace is God giving us favor we don't deserve. One of our favorite musicals, my wife and I have been twice, is Les Mis. And there's a scene in Les Mis, and I, I've used it in, in videos and stuff, but I just want to explain it. Jean Val, Jean, um, Valjean is this guy who's been in prison, and he's released on parole. And he can't get a job, and he's hungry, and he's broke. And this priest invites him into the rectory and the church. And in the middle of the night, John is in the process of stealing the silverware, and the priest comes up, he knocks him out, steals the silverware, and runs away. He's caught by the police. The police bring him back, and he's confronted with the priest, and the priest looks at him. And the police say, did he steal the silver? So we're going to throw him in jail again. And the priest said, no, he did not steal the silver. I gave it to him. That's mercy. Releasing him from the consequences that he deserves. He then turns and he tells the lady who helps him, go and get the candlesticks. John, why did you forget the candlesticks? And he gives him the silver candlesticks. That's grace. You see, we like to sing about grace. We like to talk about grace. We want to be God's favored children. We want to be the person that God gives all this good stuff to, but we forget about the mercy he's already given us. You see, if it wasn't for the mercy, we couldn't receive his grace. And as followers of Jesus, before we start looking for the grace, we need to fall on our knees and thank God for the mercy he's already bestowed upon us. That's what Jesus Christ's death is. None of us deserve it. There was a, in 1971, there was an experiment at Stanford. It was uh, Philip Zimbardo was the professor who led it. It was called the Stanford Prison Experiment. It's a very ex famous experiment. They took a group of people and randomly, some were guards and some were prisoners, and they put them in this environment, and they wanted to see how people would react. After six days, they had to cancel the experiment. Because the people who they assigned to be guards had become so sadistic and cruel, they were hurting people. And the people they had assigned to be the prisoners were so depressed and were suffering such acute stress and anxiety, they were afraid for the long-term consequences. I read an article back when I was in grad school that talked about if I... If you were born in Nazi Germany in the 1930s, you probably would have been a Nazi. But the reality is, except for God's mercy and grace and where we are and how we are, frankly, if you were born into a family that was racist, the likelihood is you're pretty racist. If you were born into a family that had child abuse, you're likely to abuse your children. But for the mercy and grace of God, we could be just like those people we're glad we're not as bad of. 
But the message of the cross, the message of that last death, is no matter where you are, no matter how you've lost your way, no matter what you've done, the God of the universe wants to show favor to you. He wants to give you his presence. He wants to walk through life with you. He wants to show you a way back. And it doesn't matter where you've come from. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter if you're a student at Sterling College. It doesn't matter if you're Herod or Salome or Herodias. Jesus Christ went to the cross for all of us. And we can have a full life. We can have the presence of God walk with us. So I stand here this morning not as somebody who has it all figured out, not as a person who's better than anybody in here. I, I, again, complete candor, I have to admit there have been moments in my career as a basketball coach. At one in the morning, I wanted to kick off my entire team and go find another team in the student body. Thank God he let me sleep that night. There have been times I have been extremely angry at my kids, my wife, my boss. There is greed and dishonesty and lust that I wrestle with just like everybody else. But I have a savior, savior who loved me, who died for me, who gave me mercy and gave me grace and now gives me favor. And I can stand before you as a result. Can I pray for you? Lord, this morning, there are some in here who I believe have lost their way. They find themselves in a relationship or an addiction or a habit or a behavior that they are trapped in. Lord, I pray that you would soften their conscience, that you would heal them. God, that you would show them your favor and your love and your mercy and grace in ways that they've never seen before. That they would discover there is a way, there is one way And Lord, that even during this semester and this year, there would be times of release and freedom and grace and mercy that they've never experienced before in their life. God, for those of us who claim to follow you, I pray for conviction that we would stop thinking we're better than somebody else. That you would overwhelm us with a sense of your mercy, that we would appreciate all you've done for us and so have our hearts softened to be compassionate and gentle and open and warm, that we would be sensitive to hurt and pain and not just judgmental because somebody's different than us. Most of all, Jesus, I just thank you that you died for me, that you gave me mercy, you gave me grace. And I pray that you would bless all those here today, that they would experience that in tangible ways today and this week. I pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.